I actually partnered with one of the band members from one of the bands I was managing and we just started writing some songs and within six months of writing our first song together, it somehow got picked up on national radio in Australia and was like an overnight, I wouldn't call it a hit, but it, it was known, right? And you'd, you'd turn on the radio and you'd hear it. This is Seeking Startups, a show that gives you an inside look into the minds of ambitious people who are changing the world. Learn about what they're building, their personal stories, and invest in the founders you believe in. Now, with equity crowdfunding, anyone can invest in early stage private startups. So listen up, because you might just discover the next unicorn. I'm your host, Maxim Davis, and today on Seeking Startups, we have Josh Simons, the co-founder of Vamper. Vamper is a marketplace that brings together musicians and creatives. In the past six years, Josh has been able to grow Vamper to over 1 million users, helping Vamper become a large global player in the music tech industry. Josh's love of music started from a very young age and naturally turned into a career path. Along this journey, he has created films, managed bands, and even created his own band called Buchanan, which became well-known in Australia. Listen up as Josh shares some very interesting stories. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, I would like to quickly say that everything you hear in this podcast is for educational purposes only. This is not financial advice and I'm not endorsing this company. Please do proper due diligence before investing in any startup. Okay, now with that out of the way, let's get started. Vamper is a social professional network for musicians and creatives in the music ecosystem. So what what does that mean in layman's terms? It's sort of... uh, on the one hand, bass players looking for guitarists or producers looking for singers, but you know, it kind of goes these days much deeper than that. We've got 27,000 different skill types on the platform, and that means you know, anywhere from videographers looking for band managers to try and pitch their services towards, from you know, to graphic designers looking for bands, looking for artwork, um, and everything in between. You know, a lot of engineers, roadie types, people like that. Any anyone connected to the sort of world of creativity. It's kind of like a LinkedIn service for folks like that. Interesting. And so I'd like to first get to know more about you. Um, so you grew up in Melbourne, Australia, is that right? Yeah. So I was born in England um, and sort of, you know, did kindergarten there. And then, um, yeah, my father passed when I was very young and, and mum mum was the Australian of the two parents. So she decided to take us back to Australia to be with her, um, you know, sisters and uh, extended family. And so we, we did school in Australia. Um, and very much you can hear in my voice probably, sure. uh, spent my formative years there, but, uh, shortly after finishing school, I actually moved back to England and spent quite a bit of time in, in London. Um, and now I live in America, of course. And what was it like growing up in Australia? Yeah. I mean, the quality of life in Australia is probably up there with some of the best places in the world. I mean, there's a reason Cities like Melbourne and Sydney and Perth rank in the top 10 most livable cities every year. Um, it really is a good quality of life. People are paid well. Um, the weather's typically pretty good. Um, the people are pretty relaxed. I, I think COVID's changed a lot of this, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's, um, Australia is starting to look a bit more um, of a stricter place to live, frankly. But um, uh, certainly my experience and my upbringing was a, a very pleasant place to, to grow up and I mean, the biggest challenge with Australia is that it is an island. Um, to get to America or England, you're talking about 15 hours or 22 hours. Um, so it is quite disconnected from the rest of the world. And you do feel that, especially working in creative fields. Um, you know, the real opportunity simply exists in overseas markets like the US because the, the audience size is just 
so much larger. Um, Australia as a piece of land is about the same size as the United States, but it has 22 million people, which is, you know, like a 15th or something of the number of people in um, the state. So uh, it, it does feel like a very large country town um, and that's perfect for some people and probably not so good for more ambitious people like myself. And so from a very young age, you were interested in music. Um, you played the piano, is that right? Yeah, I, th- I think I started playing the piano probably around the age of like six or seven. Um, took lessons. Uh, my parents um, had a background in music on the on the business side of things. So like my granddad, uh, he started a publishing company which ended up becoming Universal Music. Um, and my dad was a had a publishing company too, and he worked for people like Paul McCartney. Um, and so going and my mum worked at Warner Brothers and. So going into music kind of always seemed inevitable, and I think Mum wanted me and my brother to play some music in the household growing up. Sure. So she bought us a piano when we were very, very young, um, and I just fell in love with it. I think my brother was less enthusiastic and probably stopped playing after too long, but I kept going, and yeah, it just almost seemed like heading into that industry was inevitable from a very young age. I see. You know, you, you spoke a little bit about your father passing away and then that must have been very difficult for your mother, you know, being a single parent. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, that experience and, and, and how that influenced you? At the time, she did such a, a remarkable job of insulating. Um, when I say my brother, I'm a twin, actually. So, um, okay. yeah, so she did a really good job of insulating any of whatever she was going through from us. I mean, I look back on my childhood and think it was quite normal for whatever that means, although I'm sure everyone's childhood is unique. And But, um, you know, it felt quite traditional. But I, as an adult, I can now appreciate that she was actually masking a world of pain. Um, he had a, a very rare form of cancer called multiple myeloma, um, mm. and it lasted for... It lasted for about nine years, and most people who get that diagnosis don't make it past the six-month mark. Um, so, what that really meant for her was nine years of will he or won't he pass, and and very close calls and remissions, and then getting sick again, and um, just a lot of trauma, frankly. Sure. Um, which again, we were somewhat shielded from. But yeah, you know, as you get older, you start to unpack that stuff, and I'm so, sure a psychologist or a psychiatrist would have a lot to say. <laughs> to me about some of that but um you know it's it's been defining i mean it's also been a very driving factor in my life cuz i'll never know what he thinks about what i do if anything it's pushed me to put uh, to work a little bit harder you like to think that um you know you, you'd be making him proud wherever he is whether there's a heaven or not um that he'd be looking down and, and, and proud of what you do. So I think it's actually made me and my brother work a little bit harder than we might otherwise have done. I see. And so moving on to your education, it sounds like school kind of came fairly easy to you. Um, did you enjoy going to school? No, I hated school, to be honest. Um, I, I, you're right in that it was easy. I was like one of those kids that I, I, I mean, especially towards the end of school, I almost stopped showing up and I was still pulling mm. pretty good grades. But um, I, I couldn't wait to get out of there. I actually dropped out of school, um, high school, in the second last year and said to my parents, the money that you're spending on tuition would be better spent on doing it, like me starting a business. And I did that. I had, I had to write like a 270-page business plan. Wow. And um, I pitched it to them and they said reluctantly, yes. 
Um, and then I went back and completed all of my education through online learning. So I, I, I've now got a degree, a bachelor's degree, a high school diploma, all of that. But um, I did it all through online learning because attending school just felt like I wasn't contributing in other ways. Like I wanted to, um, I wanted to make movies. I wanted to bring mm. music into the world. I wanted to employ people and create opportunities for others. And I was able to do that as soon as I left. So um, yeah, just I don't think school is for everyone. Um, sure. And online learning is is equally challenging because you have to have the discipline of actually doing the work, doing the readings, watching the course, watching the lectures, doing the assignments. But um, I did it over 10 years. And so that meant that I was allowed to be active in the workforce uh, while chipping away at a more traditional education, which I do think it has its place. I mean, although, although I, in recent years, I think a lot of experts are sort of saying maybe it, it's less relevant than it was even 10 years ago. But nevertheless, I, I value education, especially in so, certain professions like you wouldn't want a doctor who didn't enjoy <laughs> going to college um sure. and you wouldn't want you wouldn't want a civil engineer um who hadn't done training either but you know certainly i'm in, i mean my degree was business um and i majored in music industry i majored in marketing advertising um and uh, i jumped between some majors but uh you learn all of those skills in the real world. You don't learn those skills um, by sitting in front of a whiteboard. Uh, you learn them by, by screwing up and making mistakes. Right. And so you said that you made this business plan and you presented to your parents. What was that business all about? Yes, that was my first ever proper business. Um, I started a film production company. So in my second last year of school, I was doing final year film. It was called Media Studies and it was basically a combination of historical film study and production. Um, and I made a, a short film called Subterfuge, which you can still find on YouTube. Okay. Um, and it won best short film of the year in Australia for that age group. And uh, it was acquired by a big film distributor and preserved in entirety forever as part of like the, you know, the National Library of Films and all that. And that made me sort of realize, okay, I think I want to I be a filmmaker so I, I used my last year's tuition to budget out and scope a, a feature film. I mean, we made a full on, you know, hour and a half movie. Um, and it was really hard work. Um, it really nearly killed me, like quite literally. Um, <laughs> wow. And it, it kind of put me off wanting to work in film. So that was kind of my first <laughs> and last big production. <laughs> but what it, what it did give me um, was an absolute masterclass in how to manage people. So I employed 40 people throughout the production and I was 17 wow. years old. Um, and when you manage 40 people at 17 years old, um, you do learn a lot about um, just running companies. And I think it probably prepared me for the, the, the things I do now and, and the things I've done since. Wow. That's really interesting. And so you had a very interesting first job. Was this job before or after this, this gig? And can you talk a little bit about that job? Okay, so there's some background there. Um, in Australia, you're not allowed to work until you turn 14 and nine months, but a lot of people do shirk that rule and find ways to work. And the, one of the more common ones is local pharmacies, and I don't know if they do this anymore because the world's tightened up a bit, and this was back in 2004, maybe? Yeah, 2004. Okay. Um, but, but maybe they still do this. But um, anyway... 
old ladies, particularly um, sometimes old men, but mainly old ladies, uh, they have their prescription medication that they need, you know, on a recurring basis, and and the pharmacies, you know, don't really want to pay for a courier to be delivering that. So often, kids in age thirteen and fourteen will, uh, you know, get a backpack and a bike and turn up for work, and you get paid twenty dollars for a whole night of just riding your bike around and delivering drugs off to little old ladies' houses. And you, we got tipped like a dollar, <laughs> you know, and they'd, they'd be really excited to give you that tip and. Um, Look, you didn't do it for the money. You just did it to kill time and, and learn about discipline and what it is to have a job. But um, yeah, that was my first job. And I did that for about probably two years, I think. That's really unique. Yeah, I haven't really heard anything like that here in the US. So uh, fascinating. And so after your film production company, um, what did you do after that? Well, I mowed lawns for two years. And that was probably the most valuable two years of my life. Really? Um, well, I just kind of reconnected with nature. I got to be a 20, I got to be a 19 slash 20 year old. Um, I got to mess around and, you know, earn good money without having any responsibility. Um, and, and I just, I also got to rediscover what I loved, which was music. Um, and that's sort of how I came back to music. And so I was, I was, uh, mowing lawns and a lot of my friends and people that I was just meeting along the way, um, played in bands and I started to really hear the potential in some of those bands. And I thought I could manage this um, and I could really do something with it and potentially make everyone quite a bit of money. And so I started managing bands, but, um, and this is not a criticism or a slight to these bands, but none of them wanted to have commercial success. They were very content being like sort of committed to this sort of alternative rock scene and doing things legit. And all I could hear was their songs on TV shows and soundtracks and trailers and um, I got a bit fed up with trying to convince them to do something that they didn't want to do. So I thought, well, I can sing and I can play and I've got all the skills I've been learning my whole life. Why don't I just make the music? And that's how I got started in my band, which did very, very well. So yeah, how, uh, can you speak about that? So you eventually decided this is something I want to do and you started up and how did it go? Yeah. So as I say, I was getting frustrated with those other groups. And so I just started noodling. Like I, I didn't actually plan on like starting a band. I, I, although I do remember the night I told my girlfriend I'm doing this and she was, she's a lawyer. So she wasn't very impressed. <laughs> uh, she was like, you're going to do something that makes no money. Are you insane? Um, and I was like, no, no, no. I, I think I can, I can transition into this. Um, and so I actually partnered with one of the band members from one of the bands I was managing. And we just started writing some songs. And within six months of writing our first song together, it somehow got picked up on national radio in Australia and was like an overnight, I wouldn't call it a hit, but it, it was known, right? And you'd, you'd turn on the radio and you'd hear it. And, and so suddenly we got invited to play festivals alongside, you know, people like Gautier and um, uh, Cut Copy and uh, I think Mumford & Sons maybe. But anyway, like lots of big bands and stuff. And um, and then we followed it up with another song that was bigger again. And so things just started snowballing. And then, you know, all of a sudden I didn't have time to be a gardener anymore. Um, <laughs> and I had to, had to quit that job. And suddenly I was a full-time, you know, artist. Uh, and that was probably like the funnest five years of my life, to be honest. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, we, we toured Australia eight times, um, in total, which is quite a lot. We had, um two sort of studio albums, but, uh, I mean, it kind of, 
if you look at my life in terms of how things naturally progress, it, it makes sense that the next thing was um, Vamper because we hit a bit of a wall when we tried to recreate the success we were having in Australia in London. So I went back to England and I, the band was doing really well in Australia, but I was trying to recreate the success in a, a slightly larger market. And I just didn't have a team. I didn't have a publicist. I didn't have a manager. I didn't have an agent. Some of the band members didn't follow. So I didn't have my partners and my you know comrades. And um, it was ultimately a very isolating and lonely experience. And it, it kind of hit a wall and it, and it all came to a bit of a stop. Um, and that was when the idea for Vampa came about. And I thought, well, there needs to be a, a better way for folks to be able to use technology to create a network, um, especially a network of like-minded people in the same tribe with the same mindset and, and how, and then I started thinking about how can technology solve that problem? Um, never having built a tech product aside from coding a couple of websites in my life. Um, but, uh, you know, I didn't immediately jump into Vampa full time. I still, uh, was in the, the band kept going for some time and then there was a bit of crossover. When we come back, you'll get to hear how Josh was able to convince a successful artist, Barry Palmer, to join Vamper. But before that, here's how you can personally invest in the company. Vamper is raising up to $3.99 million at a $20 million pre-money valuation on WeFunder. Funding is currently open, but is scheduled to close on April 30th, 2022. But if they hit their maximum funding limit before then, the round will automatically close. If you're interested in getting more information, check the show notes where you can find a link to the funding page. And so I know every company has at least one interesting story starting out. And it sounds like, you know, you had an interesting story from how Vampire was even started. But do you have any other memorable stories that you can share? My business partner in Vampa, my co-founder, his name is Baz Palmer. He, um, he was actually my label boss. He offered me my first ever big record deal. Um, it's worth, you know couple hundred thousand dollars or something wow. and just a lot of money. Yeah. And, um, we had, we did that first album together and it did well. And then he actually resigned from what he was doing in music and, and went into tech. So then when Vampa came, when the idea for Vampa came along, I called him up and we hadn't spoken in about a year. And I said, you know, I have an idea and you might be the right guy to do this with. And he, he made me pitch him. And then he said, well, listen, I, I sympathize with the, the story. And I think this is a great idea, but I'm not going to take any, I'm not going to make any steps on this or take, you know, take any steps forward without you generating and, and delivering a prototype and a pitch deck. And I had never heard of a prototype or a pitch deck <laughs> in my life, but I turned it around in 24 hours and we registered the company the next day. So, Fascinating. you know, that, that's kind of one of our, I guess, like interesting founding stories. And we, we laugh about it now, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, Funny that at one point he was my boss and now we're equals um, and, uh, and that we've been working together now for probably like 12 years, which is crazy. And I think it's really important. It's like a lot of bands you'll hear, the, the bands that last, if you look at like the Beatles or your Coldplay's or your U2's, a lot of these like, you know, major historical bands, they were friends first. And I feel the same is true for small business or not even small business for startups. If you can go into something with a person who you've had a relationship for, you know, longer than however, you know, long it took you to Google some people or look up on LinkedIn, which is right. how a lot of, unfortunately, I think a lot of startups start is people 
using like founder dating services and stuff, which I don't think is particularly good. But yeah, if you can go into something with someone you have a relationship with, I think the chances of success are, you know, markedly higher um, or the likelihood that it actually survives. That's a very interesting story. Um, but I also know that, you know, companies have a lot of ups and a lot of downs. And so mm-hmm. what has been the hardest challenge you have faced at Vamper in trying to grow this company? We went through an event in um, it was early 2018 that probably should have killed us. Um, at the time, we had a very different app than the one that exists today, but things were moving really fast. Apple had just announced this as one of their apps of the year. Um, we were getting tens of thousands of new users a month and things just felt like they're on a rocket ship. And then uh, and the investor who was kind of going to give us the capital to allow us to accelerate things from that position uh, pulled out at the very last minute and it, we, we had no cash. And, we'd, and you learned, we learned a lot from this. We probably shouldn't have depended so much on a single person coming through. Um, sure. And, you know, these days we never would. But uh, nevertheless, we, we had put a lot of uh, hope into this sort of all our eggs into one basket effectively. And um, when it didn't come through, we had to do some pretty drastic, uh, you know, savings and cuts and all sorts of things across the board just to keep, keep the company solvent. Um, but it was also, in retrospect, uh, an absolute blessing because it forced us to go back to the whiteboard and look at what was working, what was sustainable, what wasn't working, why it wasn't working. And we ultimately scoped uh, an entire new platform, uh, one that was far more scalable one that had room to be built on top. Like we had this closed sort of Tinder-esque thing in the original version and and Vamp is now much more of an open network. Um, So we really had to go back to the drawing board on things like infrastructure and um, like technical infrastructure, Um, just functionality, Um, you know, looking five years into the future and working out how, how do you get there. And it provided us and allowed us that time to do that while trying to restart interest with investors. And that was hard, hard work. I don't know many people would get through that because you've got a product that you're not spending any money on. So your numbers start dwindling. Um, You're building out a vision that you know has a price tag of several million dollars. um, And you're trying to get investors interested while the numbers are sort of telling the opposite story. Um, But we did it. And we got through that. And we were very transparent through that whole process with everyone who we tried to get interested in explained why we thought that things would work um, despite what might have been going on in the last 12 months or a few months at that point. Um, And we got through it. Like that whole period lasted 18 months where on any given day we could have, it could have been our last, Um, but I, I, I got us through it. Right. And so obviously you've had some very tough times getting Vamper started and, you know, starting a company isn't easy. What, what makes you so resilient, especially through those tough times to keep going? Well, I don't want to go back and work for anyone else. And even, even on my hardest days, and you know, we, I regularly work 17-hour days and we've got folks in five different time zones and I barely sleep. But even in those moments or the tougher ones where money gets tight, um, there's still more entertaining challenges than the mundanity of turning up to a job nine to five that you hate. Um, I feel like that would take a bigger toll on my mental health than, than trying to problem solve, uh, you know, these challenges that are unique to entrepreneurs and, you know, leaders of startups. Um, they're very different kinds of problems. Um, but I don't think I could handle 
going back and working for another person. And so that really leaves me with one option. I've got to make it work. Right. Um, and so I make it work. Moving on to your team, you've already, already talked about your co-founder. Um, can you tell me about his background and what he brings to Vampire and how that dynamic works between what you do and then what he does? Yeah. Um, he's very much sits on um, the product side of things. He's a, I think he's a product master. So He's involved in four startups in a pretty big way, and we're not equal co-founders for that reason. Okay. Um, so he probably puts in about two or three hours a day into Vampa, whereas I do like closer to seventeen hours, and our equity sort of reflects that. Um, but uh, in all of his startups, he's pretty much head of product, so that means you know he's bringing uh, design decisions, UX decisions, overall high-level functionality things like are we going to introduce a marketplace next year for example um and so that's his major contribution but of what should also not be ignored is his and my own domain expertise in music so whilst vampir is a tech company it's a music tech company and our combined experience in the music industry spans 40 years um mm. and he was in a very very famous band in australia called hunters and collectors that you know, that they also were quite big in Europe and a little bit in America in the sort of 80s, 90s. Um, but uh, he's incredibly well-respected in Australia. You know, he's 12 times platinum, Hall of Fame artist. Um, wow. So our industry reach and under an inherent understanding as in we don't need to pay for user research every time we have an assumption on what a, a musician's needs or requirements are when we're making a product decision that is worth its weight in gold. And you don't understand that until you've been running a startup for several years, because when you start to solve up or start to maybe look to solve other people's problems, you realize, oh, we've got to bring in advisors or we've got to bring in consultants. And, and you realize, oh my God, the cost of that. Imagine if we had to, imagine if we put a dollar value next to our domain expertise and, and right. then charge the company for it. I mean, it would bankrupt the company. Um, so that's what we bring. That's what he brings, but it's what I bring too. Um, and as I say, he focuses more on the product even though I'm the CEO and I touch every single part of the company, um, like there's not a part of the company I don't have some level of understanding of. Um, I, my main focus is probably marketing. Um, that's kind of my strength. Um, mm -hmm. Again, having studied that, having practiced it. And so we complement each other in those ways because he, he's, his strength is not marketing. Um, and whilst I work on the product every day, some of the best light bulb moments happen more on his side of the fence rather than mine. Sure. So that's what he brings to the table. And what does the decision structure look like? Let's say, you know, you're looking at a strategic decision. Um, how do you come to an agreement on something? Maybe even if you don't see eye to eye. Um, well, right now we're actually looking at four different potential acquisitions. Um, and so it's a good time to answer that question. The <laughs> truth is, um, Maxim, that, uh, him and I almost never disagree on a strategic decision. I okay. mean, I could probably count it on less than one hand. Um, we, where we do disagree maybe is more op on an operational level stuff. Um, so further down the tree, when, when it comes to big picture stuff, we'll, we'll, we'll always find consensus before approaching our board. Um, our board often doesn't agree with us, and, and then it's our job to either pitch it better or um, convince them otherwise. And that I, I like that. I think boards, good boards make companies start up stronger because, uh, they bring consideration to things which founders might be a little bit giddy to jump into without giving a lot of thought. So they make, make you pause to, um, you know, contemplate and consider things properly. So sure. I really appreciate that. 
on those level decisions, him and I always back each other. And I'm sure there's levels of compromise on both sides that are unspoken. But when one of us sees the other getting excited, we just let the person run with it. We don't stand in the way. And I think you learn that because we've both been successful music producers. Um, it's a skill you learn in the studio. Um, and as Kanye West refers to and has up on his wall in the studio, sometimes just shut the fuck up. What that really means is if you see someone inspired and, and wanting to run with an idea, wisdom would tell you, even if you think in your gut, oh, I don't know, this one looks a pretty, not a great idea. If that person's inspired, your job is not to stand in the way of that. It's to let them run at the idea, have their best crack at executing it. And then if it fails at that point, you've at least given them the opportunity to try it. Um, because more often than not, if someone's inspired about something, there will be something good that comes from that, whether it's the whole idea or some part of the idea. Um, so, yeah, we don't really, we don't step on each other's toes ever. That's really interesting. And can you also talk about your core team? Um, how, how did you meet them and, and what did you see in them in the beginning that you thought this, this was the right person for Vampire? Yeah, I think like everything in life, you, one thing can be traced back to another and it's a bit of a tree. And so, um, we, we just had a big in-person team meeting the first since COVID last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were laughing about this, how we all came to know each other. But it really was a case of like early on I had an employee to do this and then they introduced us to a specialist who did that and then we ended up hiring the specialist and then the specialist said, oh, my friend does that. And then we met with the friend. And, and so it's all been um, – quite uh, organic. I mean, as our requirements have increased and they certainly have in the last six months, uh, we've had to do a little bit more traditional like job listings and stuff, which is new to us. That's like, we've never done that in the sort of six years that we've been around. Um, But this year, for this year, for the first time, we've definitely posted quite a few job adverts. And again, the first people we've hired haven't necessarily been the ones that stay, but they've introduced us to other people that, um, have have worked out better and fit more. Uh, it, it, cultural fit's really important to us. Um, so I I would say that Barry and I value personality and hard work more than skill because mm-hmm. skill can be taught, whereas um, you know work ethic um, and you know being independent uh, and proactive feet, uh, qualities like that uh, they they're harder to teach. So, yeah, you'll see a bit of a pattern there. Of It's kind of a bit of a family. Um, it's not in a mafia way, but <laughs> it is a bit of a family. It, we run right. the company like a family in a way. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the show. But before we hear Josh's vision for Vamper, I thought you might be interested in hearing a few stats about the company. In the most recent fiscal year end, Vamper generated $241,511 of revenue and had a net loss of $173,761. The company is currently located in Los Angeles, California. Vamper has over 1 million total users. The daily average session time of Vamper users is 33 minutes. And Vamper has seen 22% month over month revenue growth in 2021. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. Moving on to your company and the vision um, if you were to look out maybe five, 10 years, where do you see the music industry going? And where do you see Vamper fitting into that? Music tech is currently in a bit of a 
an interesting spot where there's a lot of convergence happening between existing technologies. So you've got loop companies like or sound pack companies like uh, say Splice um, now offering you know music distribution, for example. Right? Just, I don't actually know if that's true, but like that, you're seeing things okay. like that happen left, right, and center. The reason that is is that you got a whole bunch of these companies out there offering services. Um, and they're offering really good services, but they're feeling probably pressure from investors and um, and users to try and be the definitive one-stop shop. So that's what everyone's everyone's racing to become the one-stop shop for um, the music and or music tech. And I don't believe that you get there by tacking on one service to another. It's like stapling a whole bunch of disparate businesses. I don't think it makes a lot of sense that. Um, approach that we're taking and where I think where why I think we can win this race and that's what it feels like uh, is that we believe that if you place social at the center at the heart um, and that everything else branches from there that you can not necessarily be a one-stop shop but you can offer a suite of tools that folks who come for the social experience can pick and choose from a la carte as they need them and I think it's a more uh, scalable approach than just bundling and stapling things that don't really have a lot in common um, without that commonality of the social hub that folks can communicate around. And so that's why I think you'll see us doing, you know, a range of things from education is something that we're about to dive into a little bit um, through to marketplace things like Fiverr, stuff like that. There's a whole lot of features like that, that are novel to a social platform. Um, and it's hard to hard to articulate that without sort of a whiteboard and and a, and a black marker. But um, I, I think basically in five years' time, one company will have probably it's going to be a winner takes all thing. I really believe that, and that a lot of the music tech companies that you see today will either be merged in with with other ones or non-existent because someone's sort of taken the lead. And I think we're as primed to capture that position as any other music tech company. Right. And so you speak about that social aspect. Is that, is that your secret sauce? Is that what makes Vamper stand out from the rest? I think so, because no one else in the space, and I, believe me, I, I know all the CEOs I, on a personal basis, no one else is interested in tackling winning the social space because they look at it and they go, well, why would we tackle social? TikTok already owns that, mm -hmm. Instagram stories. But they own it from a consumer perspective, from a fan perspective. They don't own it from uh, the professional or the creator perspective in terms of the folk, the folks who are actually trying to develop a professional network. Like you can't go on TikTok and type in, I'm looking for a band manager in Phoenix uh, who listens to Led Zeppelin but also likes Kanye West, but you can do that on Vampa, <laughs> right? Okay, okay. Um, and that's ultimately why people use Vampa. Uh, our challenge is then to keep them on Vampa. So, um, mm. what happens once you've met that person. Um, and we're tackling that in interesting ways. We've got a news feed that we launched six months ago. We've got a, a thing called Rooms that we just launched too, and that's, that's proved to be incredibly popular. The Rooms is where you can go and chat with like-minded people on the app around things that you have in common. Um, so there's lots of stuff we're doing on, on the social front to really uh, help improve uh, career prospects for folks who come to like generally fledgling artists or, you know, music professionals that come to Vampa in search of solutions. Um, and so us then offering 
things like distribution, publishing services, education, marketplace features. Uh, makes a lot of sense because they're already there. They're onboarded. They've got all their information. They're, they're spruiking something. They're selling themselves. They're mm-hmm. looking for someone who's selling themselves also. Um, so, yeah, I, look, I, I think I think Vamp is very much on track to, to win this music tech race that we're all in. Um, but it is going to end at, at some point, and I think it will happen this decade. The music industry, on the other hand, which is a little bit different, okay. um, is doing – well, it's for the first time in almost two decades is finally on an uptick. So obviously around the year 2000 when Napster and stuff came along, um, it took a massive dive. It lost like 70% of its value or something. Hmm. And now now it's looking like the industry is set to double in value over the next decade. Uh, and that's a really good thing for artists, obviously, most importantly. Um, but it's a good thing for, um, it's a good thing for fans too. Uh, because as the industry makes more money, it will reinvest that money into more, you know, fun and interactive experience, interactive experiences. And you're going to see that in all sorts of clever ways with the metaverse and Web3 mm-hmm. and, you know, NFTs and all that kind of stuff, which we've even been dabbling in a little bit. Okay. Um, so there's, I think there's a lot to look forward to as just a fan of music. I think the next decade is going to be awesome. Fascinating. And so you currently have over a million users on Vampire, is that correct? Yeah. And what is your distribution model and how did you, how were you able to onboard so many users? First of all, about 35% um, of our users come to Vampa through word of mouth or referral. Um, wow. So we onboard between two and 3,000 people a day, depending on the day, depending on whatever is going on in the world. Um, of that, yeah, as I say, about 35% is word of mouth. The rest of it is from more traditional advertising, um, you know, in a range of forums. I won't say exactly where because that's part of our strategy, but, um, okay. you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out how we might do that. Um, and, you know, we're very effective at advertising. I sort of, we, we shoot for a cost of acquisition around, well, but it's a bit of a range, but between 20 and 40 cents. Um, anything more than that is disappointing. Uh, so we, we, we're very strict with that. I'm very bullish on that. Um, once we get them into the app, there's a bit of an onboarding process, uh, which we're actually looking at refining right now, but it's, it's been a strength. It's quite a long onboarding, which is strange because when we first launched the app, we, we, one of our marketing points was one click sign on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked like that for a while and it was really good. But as the app became more sophisticated, the data we needed to collect in order to give them an optimal day one experience, um, became more. Um, and so it's quite a long onboarding, but, uh, once they're in, they'll start seeing quality results immediately. Um, our objective, uh, is to have someone connected with someone within their first ever session. If that happens and if they have a conversation, we can predict with a high level of accuracy, probably close to 90% that they will be a retained user for at least a year. Hmm. Um, if they don't achieve that then there's a good chance that we'll lose them. So we're always, we're always optimizing for that outcome, obviously. Um, but as I say, we were actually looking at redefining that onboarding experience at the moment um, because some people, as Vampa's product suite does become more sophisticated and, and comprehensive, some people are coming for one little feature and we don't need all of their data. We don't need, mm-hmm. um, we don't need to put them through that onboarding experience. So that's something that I think in 2022, we're going to spend quite a lot of time and money on improving. Um, but I wouldn't call it a problem either. It's just, uh, it's about 
yeah, becoming more sophisticated as the size of the user base obviously gets quite massive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, hitting 1 million users a few months ago was just such an exciting milestone and a validating moment for us. It's still early days. We think, um, we think the company can get to a place where it has 100 million active users a month. Um, that's our goal. Um, that's when I think the company will be primed for a, a very big, some sort of either exit event or public listing. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're working towards. And we've got uh, quite a clear pathway of how we're going to get there. Yeah, a million. That's, that's, that's impressive. Um, with that many people on the platform, how do you monetize the platform and how do you, what is your business model? Yeah. So the, there's quite a few ways that we monetize, but there's two primary streams and we'll just focus on those two. So um, number one is uh, a product called Vampa Pro, which is a subscription product. It's a premium version of Vampa. Uh, so if you're a free user or a freemium user, you sign up, you go through onboarding and about 70 to 80% of all the features on Vampa are available to you without having to pay a cent as it, as it should be. Uh, if you want access to some of the more premium things, you know, features such as post to everyone, um, you know, promoting a video you might want to upload, mm-hmm. um, getting additional connection requests per day. Uh, we cap the free accounts at 30 requests a day. And if you okay. want to pay for unlimited connections, you know, you can pay for that. Um, there's about eight or nine things that you get if you want to pay for pro pro is a very affordable service. It's uh, 399 a month. Um, and uh, about 3% of our users are using Pro. So um, that's, one, that's one side of the, the okay. business. And then the, and the other side, which is brand new and we've just launched, is um, we've built our own ad platform. Mm. Um, so we didn't want to rely on Google or Facebook or any of those companies because of privacy concerns and we're trying to build a network for the future, not based on the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so we built our own ad platform. It's still very much a work in progress. But, um, you know, that means that we've now got a a full-time salesperson who's doing a killer job um, selling inventory uh, on Vampa and inventory being, let's say you're swiping through results every X number of swipes, you might see an ad. um, Or if you're scrolling through the feed, every X number of posts, you might see an ad. Where our ad platform is different from the Facebooks and all of that is, first of all, We'll let advertisers tell us which segments they want to hit, but they don't get uh, to touch the data themselves at all. Okay. Um, and so we control the we control the segmenting and the um, the placements, um, and that means that there's no visibility to them into the size of the cohorts, um, into who those users might be. They just know that we'll take care of you know of the targeting based on their requirements. Um, and that's, you know, as I said, that's really early days, very early days. I think it's week eight right now. Hmm. Um, but we're, it's making as much money as Pro, which has been in the market for 12 months. So it's off to a phenomenal start. Um, and uh, we're really excited to see what, can, what we can achieve with ads as the, as the user base continues to grow and the inventory increases over the coming 12 months. Perfect. And so, you know, there's many ways to get fundraising. For a startup, you could, you know, go to venture capitalists, you can get angel investors. Why did you decide on equity crowdfunding? And why did you think that was the right move for Vampir? Well, we, we've done all three. Um, but yeah, equity crowdfunding has been something that we're now associated with very closely, which is, uh, I think, kind of a badge of honor. Um, well, number one, uh, our users 
can own their own network, which we just thought was really cool because imagine if in the early days of LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter, you were told as a user, I can own a piece of this and you're using it every day and you're loving it. I would have, I would definitely have done it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can offer that for as little as $250, I think is really special. Um, so that, that was always something that motivated us, um, just on a, you know, high sort of level. Right. Um, but also we knew that, you know, if we did this and if we did it a couple of times, maybe that we'd begin to amass a user base of, or sorry, a database rather of thousands of investors and that these would be evangelists for the brand in every country in the world, um, selling the vampa narrative, telling other people about it. Um, and it just seemed again, a no brainer to have that kind of evangelism, not without paying for it, without having to pay for a street team or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was important. Uh, and then probably the final answer and, and the most honest one is when we first did crowdfunding, um, it was during that really rough period where we had been left high and dry by a powerful VC. Um, and we were like, we can either keep flogging the dead horse or we can take the story of what we've achieved, where we're at, um, to the public market and, and let, instead of a couple of powerful people say no, uh, let thousands of people vote with their wallets. Mm-hmm. Um, and we knew it was a risk. We, we genuinely believed like if, this had not worked if that first crowdfund that we did, because we're on number three now, but if the first one had failed, we would be left not only with a dead company, but egg on our face. Mm. Um, and it would have not been good for us on a variety of levels, for, you know, but it, it did work and that's what matters. And we did pull it off and we raised about a million bucks in that round. Um, and ultimately that was the moment that everything changed for us and we were able to go and, and turn Vamper into what it is today. I have one final question, and um, it's uh, in entrepreneurship. Do you think it's more important to be courageous or intelligent? Both. <laughs> I mean, I mean, intelligence can also be a, a limiting. Like intelligence alone can can prohibit people from making decisions. I, I, t- I won't name who it is, but you know, there's there's people inside our company that are probably much smarter than me on financial decision-making level, right? But that same intelligence makes them risk-averse to making any decisions um, that have been able to propel things forward when, when you needed that courage to say, no, we should push ahead with this feature because the research, the limited research we have does suggest that it might just work and it might just pay for itself and, and, and ultimately keep people coming back and increase the time in app or something, right? I'm just making mm-hmm. up, I'm, I'm actually kind of, this is based on something, but, okay. um, but like, so you need the intelligence to analyze it and then you need the courage to then weigh up. Once you have the knowledge, you then have to make a sort of informed decision. Um, I think courageousness for courageous sake. And I know plenty of founders that do that is stupid. I know a lot of founders that, you know, do silly things like throw stuff around the room and uh, elaborate theatrics. I think that's ridiculous. And then I'm sure there's founders that are paralyzed with fear of spending a single dollar more than they need to. Um, I like to think that because I've been doing this for six, yeah, six years that I've, I've learned. I didn't, I don't think I had it all along, but I'd like to think that I've learned how to, how to walk somewhere in the middle. Um, I still have moments though, where I go, fuck it, let's try something. Um, and it's not based on anything other than intuition. 
And I have moments where I look at the numbers and I go, actually, yeah, this doesn't make sense. I don't think we should do it. And I walk away from something that might have been just on the verge of getting across the line. So, yeah, I think you've just, it's all, uh, it's all relative, isn't it? This has been an episode of Seeking Startups. I'm your host, Max Davis, and thank you for listening to the whole show. Make sure to subscribe and like this episode. Before I let you go, if you're a founder who is interested in getting highlighted on the show, email me at maxim at seekingstartups.com. Once again, thank you. And until next time, keep investing in the future.